Hello and welcome to Shots of Purpose. We're doing this in English today, Brian. Hello. <laughs> we do it in English all the time. Yeah, we do it in English all the time. But like <laughs> 10 seconds ago, we were talking Dutch because, Ooh. because Ooh. we have a, um, a special guest on the show. <gasps> His name is Philip. Philip Jordanov. It's a Dutch name, but um, we say it in English. Philip. Hello, Philip. Hey, guys. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Mighty fine. Listen, this guy he sounds like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, it's amazing. I sound like Una. <laughs> <laughs> the scientist, uh, very famous scientist guy who has a, a podcast and a very, yeah, I know very him. Very I just voice. never, never got the comparison before. Really? Okay. Well, Thanks for having me on, guys. This is this is nice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah it's a, thank you for being here. Um, Do you mind if I jump in with a personal question quickly? Oh. So you mentioned you said this is Philip's name is a Dutch name that you're saying it in English, but Philip is that is it really a Dutch oh, you're name? Enough. Well, the, the first name is international, I, ah. I presume, but the last name is, uh, it's Bulgarian, actually. Oh, oh wow. Cool. Huh. How did you get a Bulgarian name? That's because of my uh <laughs> Bought my at dad. the Bulgarian yeah. name store? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this other day, I walked into the Bulgarian name store, and I just saw this <laughs> name that I, I really adored. I, I had to, like, make it my own. Oh, on that one. Awesome. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, all, it's all my dad's fault. Okay. <laughs> Damn you, Dad! Cool. Let's. Um, so we've we've had the personal question. Let's let's quickly go over that. Tom is not here today. Uh, uh, yeah. No. So usually we are with the three of us, uh, Philip, as you uh, might have surmised from other episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as a special notice, Philip is the very first podcast guest who is not in our basement with us. Yeah. He's actually sitting uh, somewhere else. First remote session ever. And let's it, hope. That's yeah. how this works. Yeah, of course it works. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll come to the basement. No problem. <laughs> I'll come to the basement. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Philip, for the listener, um, who are you and what do you do? Oh, uh, well, I'm Philip, uh, as we as we know by now. <laughs> yeah. And I um, I'm a cognitive neuropsychologist at Neurofide, and in a, in a nutshell, what we do is we research decision making and help people make better decisions. And I should probably give a little more elaboration on that part. So we're, we're a team of psychologists, all from different psychological backgrounds mm -hmm. and behavioral scientists. And we, um, we're all like completely invested in researching what drives people to make certain decisions that cause certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so we, we take the insights from this research and we transform them into useful tactics and strategies that anyone can use in either becoming a better professional or attempting a behavioral change in their organization or in like a, a multitude of applications. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, I, I, I would describe it like that. What's the biggest surprise that you've had so far? In my Does professional or personal life? Yeah, more like, well, oh, that's like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like... Um, If it, when it comes to decision making, uh, yes. you've—I uh, mean—you've been researching this for a long time. You've been studying this, and you work with a company of scientists who are dedicated mm -hmm. to this uh, cause. So, what's the biggest thing so far that surprised you about human decision making? And and if you have a split between wow. personal and pro and uh, professional, I'd love to hear it. Both of them. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do that. So, um, <laughs> on, on like a on like a pro completely professional part, I uh, like some years ago I, I stumbled upon this study uh, mm. on uh, decision making and free will, actually. But uh, yeah, let's let's not get too deep into free will today. Ooh. But I mean, we could. That's so one the, tool. Yeah. <laughs> no <I'm> kidding. <laughs> nice. There, and there we go. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. So in the study, they uh, in a nutshell, they they put some participants in an fMRI scanner and looked at their looked at what their brain was doing, and they presented them with uh, like a set of choices, like you could choose from A or B, and whatever those variables may be mm -hmm. and then uh the the surprising thing about it was that they could see on the on the imaging <sighs> of the scanner so on the the brain activity what the the participants were going to choose oh wow. 10 or 11 seconds before they were consciously aware of what they were going to choose that's crazy wait, huh? long and what was the uh wait what was the the, the challenge like what were they choosing from yeah, I think like they had the study has been replicated a couple of times, but I think the classic one was that you either had to think about playing table tennis or think about making you your way to a shopping mall. So like these two uh, <laughs> things, they have very distinct uh, patterns of brain activity. Mm -hmm. And from imagining either the one or the other, they could see from their brain activity what was going to happen long long before they were consciously aware of making that decision. That's cool. So just for some listeners who might not know what fMRI means, um, <clears throat> functional magnetic resonance imagery, if I'm correct on this, is uh, it's a big... <laughs> cool. It's basically you a big machine it. that sends magnets through your brain and it can put a moving picture in real time on your com on a computer screen of your brain's activity it's a very loud and claustrophobic machine right yeah yeah phillips yeah, makes them as should... well what was that phillips makes them I yeah yeah about they you. do <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, i've i've been inside of mri scanners a lot when mm. i was uh, when i was in college cool. and it is indeed quite claustrophobic but when you get cool. used to it it becomes kind of cozy hmm. oh, nice should one get used to being in an MRI scanner, though? <laughs> well, if you're a neuropsychologist. Well, there, so far, there have not been any implications that fMRI scanners are dangerous for your health. But okay. then again, like the research is like, yes, so far, we have yeah, not yeah. found anything. Yeah, right? okay. But who knows what's going to happen in a couple of years? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, feelings. like usually if you're in a machine, if you're in an MRI scanner, something is up with you. And you're not a, uh, you're not a neuroscientist. Like that. So... Yeah, your true. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. If, you, if, if you if you dislocated your shoulder, you, sometimes you also need to get an MRI scanner, but then on your shoulder and not in your brain. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that could be. Oh, sorry. Yeah. What surprised you about that study? Yeah. Well, the thing that surprised me was that uh, I think it's kind of innate for humans to think that they are very much in control of their decision and that they're the rational thoughts that they have and uh, the logical beings that they think they are are in control of what they do and what they're going to decide and then this study shows that it's uh, like that's it it's the complete opposite that you like the conscious you are the last person to be aware of your decision mm. like your brain knows it the fmri machine knows it All right the imaging specialists they all, they also know it and then then there's yeah, you yeah. a full 10 seconds before you make the choice that's that so amazing. crazy and and they confirmed that you you made that choice yes wow yeah 
So yeah, I mean, this is this has been replicated very well. Like yeah. like other other scientists have done the same study in uh, in the different in their own lab laboratories, mm -hmm. but with the same context and the same questions, and then the same results wow. popped out, which That's means cool. that it's probably not a coincidence, but a real thing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love this example because it gets into two. The like there's, there's free will. There's yeah, exactly the elephant, the rider. So like dual systems processing theory we get into. Um, mm -hmm. But before we jump into any of those topics, I'm also curious about what's your the personal one because I think you had another thing in your mind when I asked uh, you this yeah, question. Yeah, the personal one is I think it's even more fun. <laughs> so uh, the thing that we uh, that everyone that goes into decision making a little bit further that reads a book or two about it like like thinking fast and slow or books like that. Mm, like you probably yeah. ha have it on your nightstand, not completely finished, but <laughs> one of the things that you find out relatively, uh, relatively early is that we have all these mental shortcuts that our brain makes mm. and they cause uh, our decisions to be influenced like one way or another for better or for worse. And we are completely unaware of this, but this makes our decision-making very irrational sometimes, to, to put it lightly. And so I would think, or I, I, I was thinking that if I study all these uh, mental shortcuts or cognitive biases, as they are called in, in psychology and neuroscience, that I would be aware of all them and that they would not affect my decision-making anymore. Huh. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> like I can, I, I just my uh, my decisions are riddled with biases, and everything that I think about is also uh, like infected by bias, one way or another. The thing is now that I, I the only thing that changes is that I'm very aware of it right now, hmm. very aware of my own bias and that of the bias of those around me. Wow, do, do you have an example? Uh, yeah, let's see. So, we, well, the, the the most like common example is the the example of confirmation bias, which is uh, very evident in everything we do and everything we decide and every way we behave. And it's well, in a nutshell, it just means that we tend to see, hear, and store information that is. Uh, on the same line as our previous beliefs and the things that we've heard before and the things that we want mm -hmm. to believe. So kind of you hear what you want to hear, you see what you want to see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in the world around you that is uh, riddled with information like you, you have to process tons and tons of information every second. Your brain kind of selectively picks out the things that are most convenient for the things that you believe in already. And this is how your opinion gets stronger and stronger and stronger without it really being uh, like a rationalized or science-based opinion, mm -hmm. which is causing you to believe more in your own stupidity. And <laughs> Why do you yeah, say stupidity? That, that, what, what was that? Why do you say stupidity? Well, because sometimes these biases make us do stupid things, make us take stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. So um, before we talk about what's what's stupid, what if we define uh, rational decision-making? So the, the opposite of a cognitive bias. Damn. Yes. So if you, if you want to, like, I think there are multiple ways to define rational decision-making. It's a really good question. Uh, how I see it is that you, uh, well, 
to go back to Thinking Fast and Slow, the book that is on your nightstand but not completely finished yet. <laughs> Damn it, how did you know? <laughs> so um, Danny Kahneman, the guy that wrote the book together with uh, Amos Tversky, the, they, um, they propose this theory called the, the dual processing theory. And what they mean with that is that our, our brain has two ways of thinking and decision-making, two systems, if you will. And he calls one of the systems system one, and the other one, conveniently, he calls system two. <laughs> and so system one is characterized by um, the fact that it is really fast and it is almost completely subconsciously running in the back of your mind. So it doesn't cost you lots of energy and it is really good at keeping us alive and reproducing and brushing your teeth and like basic tasks like that. Mm -hmm. But when things get more complicated, uh, it, it kind of fails us sometimes. But in the like way back in the day with the like the the saber toothed tigers, this was great to have, like not really thinking, just doing. Mm, right. And then over time, according to Kahneman and Tversky, we developed another system called System Two. And this is called our, our rational and analytical system. And system two is, um, it's a lot slower than system one and you have to put conscious effort into it. Mm -hmm. But when you do this, you can uh, quite accurately solve complex problems and compare one alternative to another and another and another and eventually decide which one is in the best of your interest, the best of the best interest of those around you and the best interest of the environment in which you live in mm -hmm. or not so or not that's that's up to you yeah, yeah, yeah so if i had to define rationality and rational decision making i would say it's this system two way of thinking mm -hmm. so not emotion heuristic and instinct based but analytical and rational based yeah so a, a rational decision, an example of a rational and irrational decision would be if you gave me marshmallow on a plate and you told me that if I would uh. wait five minutes and not eat the marshmallow and you'll give me another one, I'll get two or three marshmallows even. But if I eat the marshmallow in the five minutes, then I won't get them. The irrational decision is for me to eat one marshmallow, depriving myself of the other two. Hold on. But the rational one is if I wait and I get more marshmallows. <laughs> what if you're protecting yourself against more marshmallows? Yeah, but this is one of the biases, right? So the, that's the... Yeah, yeah, That's oh. the, the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that the developmental psychologist inside of you talking? <laughs> the marshmallow <laughs> test? Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, definitely I love some... That test. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I think it's one of those nice um, examples of system one versus system two, how they sort of conflict with each other inside of us. Yes, and, um, yes, it's true. How and we it's can, also, yeah, yeah. They designed yeah. it for for children, and like children still have developing cognition and developing brains, so yeah, they are by definition less capable of analytical and rational thinking than humans are. Yeah, and they're way it, worse at impulse control as well. Yeah, that's even more important, maybe. Yes, absolutely, and I think one of the most important um, or the most interesting things for me out of that study is. Um, when they look at the different strategies that some kids use to uh, keep themselves from eating the marshmallow. In yeah, some have way, you seen that video? Oh my goodness. There's kids that they go under the table or there was one girl that was singing to herself to keep herself distracted, you know, all these different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. And then some of the kids who would be like, 
they would poke it or they would sniff it and then they'd put it back or whatever. They end up eating it. What were the like long-term findings of this study? Ooh, Philip, I think you can say a lot more of about the this marshmallow test. Yeah. Long-term findings. Well, I think um, I might be mistaken though, but so, well, first of all, it, it replicated really well, mm. but then I think that there was also implications that the children that were absolutely terrible at it like you had the children that were kind of like capable of some form of restraining themselves and then you had the children that just couldn't do it right mm -hmm. and so i i remember something in the direction of that the children that were just terrible at the marshmallow test that they uh, grew up to have like poor impulse control in their uh, adolescence and adulthood mm -hmm. yeah but i'm not completely sure of that no actually. I, I, I that's that's what i remember as well um that the, the results of the test were correlated with uh, various degreeing of success. So yeah. people who were able to resist and get the marshmallows later, those people eventually went on to um, have more successful lives, earn money, more stable homes and things like that. And people who like, like you were saying, kids who ate the marshmallow immediately, um, they, they were the ones who were more significantly more statistically significantly more likely to get into like drug problems and um, crime and things like that. Jesus, but the yeah, thing they, the, yeah, is they the marshmallow tree far, of them. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I think they did a really like a longitudinal study, and uh, it was over seventy years or something. It was like insane. Well, insane. It was. It was really great. Um, but uh, Yost, you just mentioned something also interesting. You mentioned something about scarcity. If a kid is, yeah, yeah, because yeah. you mentioned what if the kid is protecting themselves against oh, right. a lack of marshmallows at all? I was talking about myself. Yeah, but, yeah, I know, but this is an interesting one because there's there are theories around. And this also has to do with um, epigenetics, where um, mothers who are, who like pregnant women who carry their babies uh, or are, like stressed out when they're carrying their babies or they're hungry or they're in a situation where the body thinks that they're in some kind of distress, then genes will activate inside the baby that will give them a lifetime bias towards this scarcity mindset. Like if you see food, you got to eat it immediately because- <clears throat> Yeah. You never know when you're going to get more. Yeah. And because we don't live in scarcity, right. we're not we're not being chased by saber-toothed tigers anymore. Mm -hmm. They see that a lot of people who have this trait are, you know, they they they're obese mm -hmm. or um, you know, they get into drug problems, they get into jail because they can't mm -hmm. uh, regulate their emotions, yeah. but they're thinking not necessarily that this so that, that this is one of the things like if you were to write a when they wrote a paper about this marshmallow experiment, this probably would be in the discussion. Like, why is it this way? Um, some people think that it's because of, uh, you know, this whole scarcity versus um, plentiful sort of mm. underlying mindset or like yeah. subconscious uh, bias. Mm -hmm. What I actually meant with this uh, <clears throat> remark was that yeah. I'll eat the one so I don't get two. Ah, like that. Yeah. I'm protecting myself from more marshmallows. Yeah. You could Very solid adult strategy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'll eat it now so I don't get more. I think this is post-rationalization, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> post-rationalization. <laughs> Why did you eat that marshmallow? Oh, because I knew if I if I didn't eat it, I would get two and it would make me even fatter. Right. Like, rationality yeah. squared. Okay. <laughs> um, Philip, I have a very simple question. What is a yeah. cognitive neuropsychologist? Ooh. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a question that is um, relatively easy, easy to answer. So um, a cognitive neuropsychologist is a psychologist that studied cognitive psychology and neuropsychology. 
so kind of the the, the brain and behavior kinds of subjects. Mm-hmm. But um, neuropsychology, like an, a neuropsychologist, is often um, when you when you're a neuropsychologist, you're often in a clinical setting, like you're in a hospital and you're in contact with the neurologist and you're in contact with the GP and you kind of form a treatment plan for general patients that have brain damage. Yeah. So then they had to come up with a title uh, for people that are not in a clinical setting, mm-hmm. but still studied neuropsychology and cognitive psychology. So then they decided that that would be cognitive neuropsychologist. Mm. Actually, I don't know who decided this, but <laughs> it actually, um, I think that it's, it's, it's easiest to say that it implies that you are, uh, that you're trained in cognitive psychology and neuropsychology, but in a non-clinical setting. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Sounds really badass too. Hmm. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, but it it, it it can confuse people. Like really? uh if if um if I have to if I have to say it at, at a party or to my to my to my aunt, <laughs> I just say that I'm a psychologist yeah. because uh, oh. you you don't want to confuse people when they don't have to be confused. I like that. That's fair enough. But I'm okay, so I'm I'm uh, I'm curious about something else now. If you don't mind, <laughs> like I don't necessarily want to move on, but I think if we give, um, I, w- I want to talk about the sustainable fashion week and oh, then yeah. circle back via that to, uh, the cognitive biases and decision-making, if that's okay. Cool. Can you tell me more about what you, what you did there and how you came to be there? Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, uh, so, uh, I think about a month ago I, uh, I spoke at the sustainable fashion week in Amsterdam and it was actually uh, it was actually quite coincidental because one of my colleagues um, knows one of the organizers, and one of these organizers asked my colleague to uh, come and uh, come and speak there. But like some things came up, and then uh, this colleague of mine was like, "Oh shit, I can't make it." But don't you want to go? Mm. And I was like, "Yeah, well, well, sure, but but it's it's like in three days, right?" And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, but you, you you'll pull it off." <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, it sounds really cool. Although I'm, uh, I, I don't know much about fashion, but in the end, it's about changing behavior. And I know mm. some things about changing behavior. So I, I thought, why not? Let's go there and let's see how it plays out. So then I, uh, I just pulled together like some, some facts. I put them in a slide deck and I, uh, I went to the Sustainable Fashion Week. And then, uh, as luck would have it, my computer broke down, and oh. I didn't have any slides at all. So I just did the presentation, uh, like freewheeling style, a bit out of the from the top of my head. Nice. And I talked about um, like unsustainable behavior and what is causing unsustainable behavior. And then we're kind of going back to the rational and irrational mind. Mm. And like one of the things that I uh, I said was that the brain to begin with is a very unsustainable organ because it, it weighs like 2% of the body, but it uses over 20% of its energy. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there it already goes wrong. Like the brain is unsustainable in itself. <laughs> but yeah, well, uh, jokes aside, um, if people think about it rationally and if you ask people and let them think about it, most of them know that being sustainable is uh, is the right thing to do but then like at the end of the day when they're kind of drained and kind of tired 
they usually resort to unsustainable behavior anyway. Like when they're not constantly reminded, they kind of revert back to this default mode of unsustainability. What do you um, and what do you mean when you say unsustainable behavior? Well, it it could be anything actually. It could be anything from uh, like to uh, to give you like a really personal example. I uh, I live on the on the ground floor of an apartment building, mm-hmm. and uh, on the left side as well as on the right side of my building, there are uh, there are like multiple trash cans for paper, for plastic, for glass, right. And on the left side, there is one for plastic among all the other ones. Mm-hmm. And on the right side, there are all the, all the other ones except for plastic. Hmm. And then this one time, I was just kind of like curious to see what, what happened. So I did a little ex- experiment on my own. Nice. And I sat, <laughs> sat by my window and I was looking outside. And uh, at, when I, I did this twice, actually. One time somewhere during the early afternoon. And then when I saw people throwing out their trash, like they, they, most of, most of the people separate trash nowadays. That's great. Uh, but then they're walking up to the trash cans with, uh, like the, the, the plastic, the paper and the, like the waste, the food waste. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that if they walk outside of their door, um, either the left set of trash cans is closer or the right mm-hmm. side of trash cans is closer by. And at the at the beginning and the afternoon of the like earlier in the day, it didn't really matter for people if they had to go to the trash can that was further away uh, to throw throw away their plastic because only on one of the trash can selections right. there was one for plastic. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, the people that have to walk further to throw the plastic one in the plastic bin just kind of hack it and ah. they they go for the the, the one that's closest by. <laughs> Which is terrible because you have been like separating your plastic for yeah. for the better part of the week, and then because you have to walk uh, half a minute more, you throw the, throw it all away in the wrong trash can. Huh. So and yeah, the only the only thing that I uh, I could think of is that uh, we have like we have a limited amount of energy mm-hmm. every day, and a lot of this energy is used by our brain. This mm-hmm. this uh, it's called our cognitive resource. And that when when it's running low, you're kind of going more into this default mode of like the system one way of thinking, kind of on impulse, on instinct, and you don't really care about long term thinking. You don't really care about rational approach. Mm-hmm. Same thing when you when you when you go and fight with your partner when you uh, when you're Ooh, out of work because you had a yeah. shit day. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's not really unsustainable. Beha- well, it's unsustainable for your relationship. Yeah. But the first one is a really good example. Uh, it's 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 not a real scientific study because I did it on my own. <laughs> but it did illustrate that like the less resources you have, the less sustainable you become. Right. That makes sense. And the less rational is this uh is this like um so I'm I'm asking this sincerely. Like I don't I really don't know the answer to this, but it seems um, like our, our limbic system, is it like, can, is it fair for me to map the system one and system two from Daniel Kahneman neurologically to like our limbic system in the brain and the prefrontal cortex? Uh, metaphorically, it's a really good way to map that, map them like that. But in, in reality, it's a bit more complicated because okay. there are lots of feedback loops that are between the, the cortex and the limbic system and the reptilian brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, 
that's kind of the shitty answer to give. But yes, for uh, to give an illustration and to give uh, like a metaphorical explanation, it's a really great way to map those onto the brain. Okay, thanks. But you can't really take it too literally because the brain is like a, a complex system and all the different layers are interacting with each other and making up rational and irrational and system one and system two behavior. Hmm. So when you're talking about this example of of, of uh, so much energy to uh, to spend, and then at the rest of the day, at the end of the day, you make kind of like worse decisions um, subjectively. Like, how would you yes. go about stimulating people to to then still do the right thing? Yeah. So there are actually two ways you can go. Probably more, but to to <laughs> highlight two of them. Yeah. There is uh, one one of the options you can take is to just highlight the problem, make the problem personal, and bring the problem closer to them. Mm-hmm. This is what uh, sustainability campaigns do really well. Like they show, they kind of take a deep dive into what unsustainable behavior can cause for an individual. They make it really personal, and they actively remind someone of what can go wrong if they are not being more sustainable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, great, but it is it is quite labor intensive mm. for the people that have to uh, in uh, evoke the behavioral change right. and the people whose behavior needs to be changed. And the other way is to uh, change the behavior by tackling that subconscious part of the brain. And then uh, this is what we call nudging in psychology, and it's kind of a been kind of a buzz term. Uh, <laughs> and I think that you know a lot about nudging because you're in design. Uh, who? Yeah, I mean, I do. Uh, well, I don't. Well, I wouldn't say I know a lot about it, but I, I, I yeah, I um, I think about it yeah, a lot. It's <laughs> a, it's a really, it's a really fun concept. Um, it's all. It all began with this book by uh, by Dick Taylor, and he won a won a Nobel Prize with it as well. And he was uh, the the thesis of the book is that the brain is indeed a very peculiar and unsustainable organ. <laughs> and for uh, behavioral change to last and be very effective, it's better to tackle that part of the brain that is uh, in charge most of the time, which mm-hmm. is the part of the brain that is uh, really fast, unconscious, but mm. kind of irrational. Mm-hmm. And so what nudging really means is just making the route that has the least resistance, the path of least resistance, the best option. So yeah. you give the you kind of lead the brain, you nudge the brain, if you will, to make the best choices by changing the the architecture of that choice, so the the context around the choice, and by giving a really gentle shove in the right direction. It's like hiding my explain. cookies in a place that I can't see them. I was about to say, yeah, that is that is nudging. It's making your environment work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, according to some researchers, it all started at uh, Schiphol Airport. Oh. When uh, oh. they decided to uh, to like uh, put the sticker of uh, of a fly in the men's urinal. Oh right. And, yes. <laughs> and then they then the, the cleaners uh, were thought it was like a blessing from heaven because they didn't have to uh, clean as much anymore, and they cut back on cleaning costs like tremendously. Don't know any figures, but yeah. this is like the it it the illustrates very well that by changing like something really subtle in the mm-hmm. context of 
whatever environment, yeah. you impose a very big change. And the yeah. people that um, undergo the change in behavior, they barely notice it. And it feels good for them, mm -hmm. and it feels good for the people around them. Because it's really cool to like pee on the fly. Yeah, if I, may, of, <laughs> if I may really quickly, um, I recently spoke to a woman who has never heard of this fly. So to illustrate for female listeners who have never seen a urinal, uh, so like the, the, the men's toilet where you stand peeing, there's like a fly in some of them. There's like a fly printed at, at a certain place. Uh, so that on the inside of the base on the near inside the of drain the, yeah so that apparently there's like a different angle with which your pee is hitting the toilet therefore uh, decreasing splashing gives you place to aim yeah apparently that's the nudge right it gives you the mm. yeah okay it that's turns really, into yeah, a game it's almost couldn't have explained it better <laughs> thank you um, just one other question about the the systems and energy again just I mean this is you know, just kind of curiosity. Um, this concept of, of uh, the brain being unsustainable organ, I never, never thought of it this way. This is super interesting. So I'm fascinated a little bit by this concept. And now I'm, I'm thinking about the, so we've, I, I, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like from what you said earlier, there is a way to map um, system one and system two within the brain. It's not as simple as limbic system and cortex, but, they're, they, are, they are different. So they're different um, structures within the brain that deal with uh, non-conscious things and conscious things. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And you, you, yeah, you could make that dichotomy, but you, 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 at some moment you have to start making dichotomies and start mapping sure. to make a little bit of sense out of it. But it's all like you have to, you have, you're threading on thin ice always when sure. you're speaking yeah. of like uh, the neuropsychology. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it, you're you're completely in the right. That makes sense. So, uh, is it fair to say that the system one area or si parts of the brain are more energy efficient than system two when it comes to calorie burning and the oxygen that it needs and like the literal energy that it needs to function? Yes. And actually, when you when you look at it like that. Huh. Um, the brain, like uh, it's still, you could still call it an, uh, quite a an unsustainable organ, but it really tries its best to be sustainable yeah. by saving energy. Like it's always trying to save energy. That's what cognitive and biases it, are, no? Uh, yeah, actually, um, the cognitive biases arise from mental shortcuts that the brain uses to save energy. Mm -hmm. And all this energy saving and mental shortcuts is happening in this thing that they call system one, because mm -hmm. system one happens unconsciously and you don't have to put much energy in it because it, it just runs in the back of your mind all the time. It's always on. As opposed to the rational and analytical system too, because mm -hmm. when you want that part of your brain to kick in, you have to consciously put energy into it. <laughs> well, so yeah, I, it might be a cool. bit like I—I uh, I was the one who called the brain uh, an unsustainable organ. It might be a bit mean to the brain to say that, wow. but because Sorry, it really tries very hard to be sustainable. <laughs> yeah. But when it tries to be sustainable by saving energy, so by making mental shortcuts, there's actually there's a longer mm -hmm. story to that then these uh, thinking errors arise, which are called cognitive biases. Sure. And they're universal. They're, they're happening to everyone. It's not that one has them and the other doesn't. Like, 
one can be a little bit less susceptible to them, but mm -hmm. everyone is dealing with these cognitive biases. So if we're looping back to what you were saying earlier, like you studied uh, neuropsychology and cognitive psychology, so you're aware of your own biases, but how do you deal with those? Like, because you were aware of them, and but you, you kind of said that it, it wasn't very, it wasn't easy to deal with them and you were still unable to deal with them. Like, what, what can one do? Well, there, there are definitely things to do, but you should just keep, uh, keep in the back of your mind that your brain is trying really hard to be sustainable by switching to the, like, the unconscious processing mode. And right. that mode, you don't have really have much control over. And to, like, like pinpoint the scope of the problem this part of the brain is in charge of decisions for 95% of the time but this 5% of the your decisions that you make you make consciously and rationally and there you can do something to make better decisions so to not be affected by these biases and awareness is a really good first step because at least you are aware of them and you can spot them and most of the times it's too late, mm -hmm. but sometimes you can catch yourself, can I say mid-bias? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> mid-bias. And you can nice. kind of try to inhibit yourself, just like the marshmallow test. You can you can see it like that. If you have like the marshmallow half in your mouth and you're just right. about to chew down, you're like, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's sure. bias, let's not do it. Yeah. It's yeah. a trap. Yeah, yeah. But there are also ways that are more proactive in which you can avoid yourself from biased thinking. Mm -hmm. Because under these individual uh, decisions that you make, there is like there there are patterns, there are systemic structures in your in your brain that are based on like, previous experiences, based on things you believe, and these concepts uh, you can kind of sharpen them or replace them with better concepts by using uh, what what psychologists call mental models. Mm -hmm. Mental models are basically just, uh, it's a fancy word for concept. So um, a mental model, like a good mental model, is an accurate representation of the world around you and how it works. And if you have a little piece of that, like one mental model, and internalize it very well, like have it in the, somewhere deep in your, in, your, in your own vision, in your own behavior, the chances that you make irrational decisions on that little piece are way smaller because you have a really strong and good concept, a good mental model of that area. Huh. And you can, you can actually, you can, you can train yourself to, uh, in mental models by, by reading about them, by trying to apply them, and you will see that you become better at making decisions. This is what, uh, what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are really good at, like the legendary <laughs> investors. They kind of, uh, the Charlie Munger is one of the, the, the grandfathers of mental models and their importance. But then again, there's like a, there's a little pitfall in the, the mental model uh, thing. And that is that you can, you can read about a lot of them and you can, uh, you can implement them in your, in your day-to-day -day life. But the most important ones are very implicit. So you cannot really, you can't really internalize them by reading about them. You have to practice. Mm -hmm. But there are no clear guidelines on how to practice it. You just have to watch and learn from the people around you that have really good implicit mental models. And if yeah. you're lucky, you can you can benefit from it. But sometimes you can't. So it's again, 
it's a bit of a slippery situation. Mm -hmm. What is an example of an implicit mental model? Uh, yeah, I I can I can give you the best example actually, um, <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a really it's a really niche thing, but it's it's a legendary example, and um, it's a mental model that allows you to really quickly determine the gender of a chick, of a baby ah, chicken. Right. Uh -huh. And um, this is a really good example of uh, an implicit mental model because the people that there are people that um, that do this for a living, like define the gender of uh, baby chickens of chicken chicks. sexers, and they're called chicken sexers. And uh, chicken sexers they get a pretty good salary actually because their job is really difficult to learn. And if they have like an an apprentice chicken sexer. Uh, that they have to that they have to teach because they will replace them in some time. There is not really a program. There is not really something they can teach. So the <laughs> the only thing that they do is they they get the the experienced chicken sexer, the apprentice chicken sexer, and a thousand chicks in one room, and uh, the the apprentice chicken sexer just has to pick up a chick and guess the gender. And then the chicken sexer, the experienced one, says yes or no, because the experienced one can define the gender in like it's like training point an AI. six of a second. Wow! It's like training an AI, and yeah. at, after uh, thousands and thousands of tries, the apprentice chicken sexer starts getting better at it, but he doesn't <laughs> know why, and he doesn't know what's going on. Hmm. But his brain is learning implicitly. So his brain is creating a mental model wow. that is able to find out what the what the gender of the chicks are. And uh, the shitty thing about it is that nobody knows what's going on. It's called perceptual learning. And yeah, yeah do the chicks. Th that's, that's pretty much all there is to it. Good luck with chicken sexing and uh, salaries <laughs> is great. Salaries <laughs> is great. <laughs> okay, so Chris, one of my questions when you were talking about um, like 95% of the time your, your uh, system one is in control. Um, one of my questions there is like, how defined is that system? Uh, can, you, can you elaborate on that question? Yeah, okay. Um, so, well, so that was the initial question, how defined is this system? Uh, but then you started talking about mental models. So there, like that kind of gives you um, some form of handles to train these biases that are in your brain. Um, but see, and you also said that it, it's based off of earlier experiences. Like, So it's not completely defined, but from birth on, like how how defined is this system one? Yeah, I th that's a really good question. It's really interesting as well. And I think that um, the best the best possible answer is to explain it from an evolutionary point of view. Mm -hmm. And that is that um, the the system, as Brian was also saying, like if you had to map our irrational mind, our system one, and our rational mind, our system two, onto the brain in some way, then the irrational mind, the system one, is mainly the limbic system and also the reptilian brain, so the, the one that the brain that was there first. Mm -hmm. And the limbic system is also called our emotional brain because it is uh, it's exclusive to mammals and it allows mammals to experience and regulate emotion until certain extents. Mm -hmm. right. And then, as humans developed uh, the neocortex, like the cortical brain, after uh, after some some period of time, mm -hmm. and this allows uh, rational decision making. 
but this system is is uh, way less defined than system one because system one has been in evolution for yeah for for hundreds of thousands of years so probably longer it, it has yeah. been it has been able yeah probably probably a lot longer actually but in humans in humans, it has right, had okay. it has a time to optimize and the only thing that it has to do is just follow instinct follow impulse and follow emotion yeah and by optimizing for such a long time, it became really quick and learned all these little shortcuts that allowed humans to survive as long as we did yeah. amongst the saber-toothed tigers. But because it is, it is so defined and trained right now, it's a lot faster and stronger than our rational mind. And in in today, when you when you have to make financial decisions or or career-related decisions that that are really important, you do not really want these shortcuts. Mm. But they're so fast, and they're so much easier for your brain to uh, to impose on your decision making mm -hmm. than analytical and rational reasoning that it happens ninety five percent of the time. I'd like to respond to that if you don't mind. Of course, because I don't. I disagree a little bit with the statement that we don't want that in decision making. I think what we don't want is that the system one is going to send us off on a path that's going to hurt us in the, in the long run, but like the chicken sectors example. Um, and maybe this is responding a bit to your question as well. Yost, like, um, I, the, the, we can train system one. And I think that's one of the things that, that Kahneman was talking about in the book. Like, and I don't remember who came up with the metaphor, but the, the, the elephant and the rider, mm -hmm. if the, if oh, the yes, rider yes, can yes. figure out how to speak with the elephant and train the elephant yeah. in the way that they work together, then you can, you can train these things so that your impulses and then your instincts will guide you the right way. So that's what's happening with these six, these chicken sexers. They train the subconscious um, to understand if it's a, if it's a male chicken or a female chicken yeah. and they can't consciously explain it. The rational brain just doesn't get there. All right. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So if in, in the, in the case of Warren Buffett or someone who's doing investments, if you can train that, um, that your instinct will guide you on the right path or like a, a healthier path, then your decision making becomes a lot faster. And I, for me, I think this is what what people do when, uh, like, martial artists or actors who, who who train a craft over and over and over. And it's very body based. It's very muscle memory based, but it's also very, you know, they make split second decisions. Dancers do this as well. Like over time, you become better, and you don't have to think about right which dance move you're going to do like where you're going to put your foot to um turn mm. your partner in this certain way yeah it like your body just kind of knows because you've trained your subconscious in that way right. yeah so that's i, I mean I, i'm curious if, like what do you think about that philip just because um, i'm responding to your point i think that you're definitely right about that and you and you can you can you can train your subconscious you can train system mm. one and in that if, if you do so then these mental shortcuts can actually indeed be in your benefit so hmm. i stand corrected on that on that uh, on that issue because it is true uh, and also if you look at it you don't really want to like boycott the emotional and instinctive and intuitive part of your brain in decision making because it's also kind of what makes us human hmm. we're not analytical and rational beings most of the time so I, I do think that you make a really strong point there. And if you, have a, if you have a trained system one, to put it that way, then the best, the best way to go about your decision making is to combine it with system two and see 
which of the systems you should trust in what decision if you want to go more on intuition <laughs> or if you want to go more on analytics or yeah. rational mindset beautifully but said to if you generalize it to uh to a larger part of the population hmm. you could say that most of uh most of the people and most of the decisions that they make uh are not or do not really have a really uh, have a system one that is trained that well yep so yep. just to be safe to if you want to make like a generalizable and large claim it's better to hold back on uh, or inhibit mental shortcuts or system one and like think slower as the book says than to follow your intuition but in people that are trained in this and also in certain contexts like in a, in a relationship for example mm. it is sometimes it's really good to follow your intuition so yeah again it's it's not it's not one is better than the other it's uh, more uh it's more complicated and it's more yeah it's more of a, of a decision that you have to make yeah. um in a certain in a certain context and i think that that's again where context starts playing a really big role what is the context of the decision yeah, that you make yeah. and how do you want to go after this i love how you said but it yeah, earlier thank, thank yeah you. It's, that's, it, a, that's a really good point yeah like we're, we're helping these systems to work for us we're working together with them not uh, against each other mm -hmm. that was well said then and the, the, yeah it is it was makes us humans we're not we're not computers um oh. you know we're emotional messy squishy things um you just i think you just gave the most kind description of like sheeple that i've ever heard <laughs> people basically the what you you right the majority of humans their system one isn't very well trained so they should avoid it or they should avoid the cognitive shortcuts um that's like sheepy sleepy uh sheeple people right i mean yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I tend i tend to be kind from time to time yeah. to the sheeple <laughs> well, how did, how did yeah, i think that, that that's where you have to make a distinction also between uh mental shortcuts and cognitive biases yeah because not all the mental shortcuts that we have are bad and if we trained our brain to make really efficient and smart mental shortcuts mm. consciously or unconsciously then they're going to work in our advantage but if mental shortcuts do something that is irrational and wrong in a certain context then you can call them cognitive bias oh man you if they're clear on a large scale you sound to me like a cognitive neuroscientist morpheus going around with the blue pill and the red pill basically like okay if you take the blue pill you can stay in your sleepy sheepy world but if you take the red pill we train your system one we help your we replaced your unhealthy cognitive biases with good ones are you ready to take this journey neo <laughs> you're like yeah, waking I, people up out of the matrix it's <laughs> fucking cool how, i how tried we... that but they gave me a criminal i'm not i'm on a criminal record now <laughs> Sorry. but i got two wow. restraining orders while trying that so don't don't do that <laughs> red pill or the blue pill uh, that's what the the hunt having was all about yeah how do we get Maybe, here yeah how did how did where where is the where was the crossing line where did our system two become more important uh yeah that's a that's a really good question and th maybe there is actually like an a time interval that is the right answer to it but i wouldn't know per se but i i would know that when uh, you could say that when humans became more civilized and mm -hmm. when 
it became more important to work together in groups on things that are bigger than just yourself. Then uh, mental shortcuts, intuition and instincts are less helpful than when you're just thinking of surviving and reproducing for yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So probably what, around that time. Which, can, okay, can make, what time? Can I, can I make a response to that? Oh, sorry. I guess you wanted to respond to it still, Philip. Yeah, I think that we can, we can try to like pinpoint certain moments in time on that. But yeah, f for the life of me, I mean, I, I wouldn't I, know. I, I could say that yeah. probably um, when religion started being a really big part. I think, I think it was before humans. that. No, because it's so yes, sorry to interrupt, but I, I have an answer for this. Um, have? I, yeah, yeah. So I don't, not, not, not like a, as a year in, in the year, blah, 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 blah. But um, I've been very interested in theories that talk about the fact that uh, the Neanderthal and Homo sapiens. So Neanderthal is the, the species of human that lived on Earth at the same time that Homo sapiens were coming up, and we coexisted for a long time. And there are reasons why Neanderthals do not exist anymore. They were extinct, and we uh, survived. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the interesting things is that Homo sapiens, the sapien part, means the knowledgeable or wise Homo, the, mm -hmm. not the wise human. Yeah. And I think that's a reference to the... Yeah. The, to do our brains, mm -hmm. the fact that we have this this huge cortex, and referencing what Philip mentioned a moment ago is that when it became evolutionarily clear that we will come further by working together and co collaborating, cooperating, and building societies and tribes with each other, then we gained more of these um, our 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 emotional. Um, let's say mechanisms got trained more towards empathy. This is one of the reasons why when we see cute things, we have this very emotional response to them. And we need to eat them. Not that we need to eat them necessarily, but that we want to take care of them like this, like the, yeah, yeah, I know. the Google car, the way that they made it, the, 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 the industrial design of the self-driving car itself yeah. is very cute because they wanted it to feel non-threatening. Right. Um, Not the, edible. And the way that dogs look, yeah. uh, when there was a Russian, um, he was in, like an amateur geneticist, and basically he got a bunch of wolves, he captured them from the wild, and he he domesticated them. Um, and what he did was, over time, he killed the ones that were uh, aggressive towards him or nervous about him, and he let the ones live that were friendly towards him. And then over the course of, uh, I think, 12 years or something, it was insanely short time, their physical characteristics started changing. They got uh, softer teeth, smaller teeth, like um, furrier. They got like uh, a weaker, more friendly uh, bodies. Um, and part of the reason why we why that seems important is because it helps us to feel them as non-threatening and so that we will take care of them like a baby. Mm. The baby's proportion of the head is much bigger than the body, and we respond to these kind of infantile things in a way that we want to take care of it because it's not viable outside by itself, mm. right? So this is one of those things. That this is how we developed empathy. This is how we developed um, oxytocin plays a role in this. Like it helps to motivate us to work together and, mm. and, and, and help each other out rather than just barbarically killing each other like the Neanderthals were doing. So to circle back, <laughs> I think the answer to your question is whenever Homo sapiens actually developed. Right. This is where I think this change happened. Yeah. What do you think about that, Philip? Am I totally off? That's fascinating. That's a really, really fascinating answer. And mm. I, I actually, I, I have never thought of it that way, but that could, that could just be it. 
be, because there is there is definitely something somewhere some switch that we have made also when there there was also a, correct me if i'm wrong but there was a brief period of time in which the homo sapiens and the homo neanderthaler also copulated and oh, had yeah. children that were or or were they infertile like if no, they, no, all if of they, us uh, all of us have neanderthal dna Yes, right. There yeah. is a huge part of Neanderthal DNA in us. Absolutely. I'm. I'm. So, I think I'm like two point uh, two point one percent or something like that. Yeah, I might be more than that. Sometimes I, I wonder, like, how much Neanderthal what do you there say, is Grog? there. I, f I feel <laughs> like there's lots of joke material here. <laughs> okay. This microphone looks tasty, guys. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Such a weird proportion. Yes. Uh, um, but to come back to your question, um, I think that that could form a really strong theory on why. A more uh, system two orientated mind could prevail over a system one orientated mm. mind, and how they could coexist and help and fuse and uh, overthrow each other in other situations. It sounds really plausible. I'm going to write this down somewhere. Thanks, <laughs> Yost. I think you wanted to ask or say something. I have a bunch of questions. Ooh, nice. um, cool. where to start? I do too. How <laughs> did people? respond to your presentation at the sustainable fashion week oh oh they they liked it but they i think that a huge part of it also was because my computer was just not working and i was just like to hell with it i'll just do it on the, out of the top of my head that's cool and also because it was um it was kind of spontaneous in a way that it's diverged from the other presentations because most of the most of the people that were speaking that day were specialized in uh, in either fashion or retail or right. something in that way and yeah. uh, most of the uh, most of the ar arguments and theses were around circularity uh, and uh, yeah. sustainable behavior around certain types of textile and I my presentation was like on a, on a on a different abstraction level it was more about how how our brains sometimes do not have the best intention for our planet in mind mm -hmm. and how we can do something about it how we can fight like these five biases that are just the worst for sustainability. <laughs> can people can, can can people find uh this presentation somewhere? Or these slides or uh yeah, well I can I can send them the slides if they want to. You can uh, if, if if there is someone listening that are, is interested in the in the presentation that I gave on the fashion week, you can always email me and I'll send them to you. Where can they? Uh, you, you'll, email you? you'll probably see them before the people that were actually present on the presentation <laughs> because I didn't all didn't right, manage yeah. to get a hold of all their emails. So. Yeah. <laughs> would you mind sending me? Would you mind sending me an email or sending me the the slides? I'd be curious to have. Well, yeah, of course. Look, look through them. Yeah, because it, it sounds very interesting. Like these five unsustainable behaviors. Like I don't think we have enough time to get into them, but I'm I'm definitely very interested to hear more about it. Yeah, for sure. And to piggyback off of Yo's thing, what's your email address in case people want to email you and yeah. get, the, get the slides? Uh, you, you can email me at philip at neurofide.com. Okay, and that's and philip with ph? That's philip with ph and one l. And then <laughs> neurofide as in n-e-u-r-o-f-i-e-d. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Nice. And give me Neurofide. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Do you have more questions? Or because I have, I, I'd like to, like, 
go on a, a slightly different direction. On a tangent. Not necessarily oh. a tangent. It's like a... Um, I have one. And I, leading towards somewhere else. Yeah, okay. I feel like this might be the thing that you're going to ask as well. Let's, okay. Let's Interesting. see. How... Okay, this... I'm going to ask this question and then it's probably going to be like, we should do this in an, in, in the next episode. Oh, we can. I, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, how ethical is it to to influence people subconsciously? What are your thoughts on that? A really good question. And uh, the, the ethics that are involved with this situation are one of the most important things when you're talking about psychology, when you're talking about behavioral economics, when you're talking about nudging, when you're talking about influence. And they're of extreme importance because the, the things that are happening, the scientific ways of changing behavior are happening on such a deep abstraction level that the only thing that is going to define if it's good or bad is the context in which it's applied. Mm -hmm. So uh, a behavior changing tactic that is based on neuroscience of psychology can be something that is uh, ethically correct and environmentally helpful and sustainable. But the same principle, the same tactic can be used for something that is that is just horrible, like mm. completely unethical. Oh, yeah. And I think that's also where like the, the difference between morals and ethics come into play really well. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Can, can I, uh, so a curveball then. Here's one. Um, how, what would your, um, what would you say, what would your response be to someone who wanted to use neuroscientific nudging to um, push someone in a sustainable direction against their own will, like without their consent. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. What do you think and about something like that? that? At that moment, um, it's, it's starting to get to the direction of a zero-sum game because the person that doesn't want to be sustainable is kind of led to be more sustainable against his or her will. Uh -huh. So I would say that's an unethical application of science. Okay. How so? Because something is happening against someone or someone's will. But, but if, you, if you think about it uh, from another perspective, like if, if, you would, if you would say, if you were to say that we as a society have certain morals yeah and one of these morals is that unsustainable behavior is bad and if we then apply these morals in such a way like then then we're talking about ethics that we're we're nudging or guiding people mm -hmm. to do something that is not immoral then you are doing something that is actually moral if you're still following me because you're mm -hmm. you're kind of combating immorality yeah but because yeah. you are on an ethical level i would argue that you're still being unethical you have bad ethics yeah but you have good morals yeah i i agree with that wow it's this is why this is this is why this is such a tricky thing for me because in the sense it's you're like saving someone from themselves mm -hmm. in the sense that you like knowing that um okay because we're talking about sustainability knowing that if if we continue doing all these unsustainable behaviors then, and at some point, probably within our lifetimes, and if not within the lifetime of the next generation, um, the, the, the planet is going to 
to become much less hospitable to human to human beings, which is going to yeah. drastically reduce our quality of life. Mm-hmm. So if we don't make change, then this is going to happen. But then where, at what level or at what point does that trump consent in the sense that which, <laughs> when does it word. become more important than yeah. a person's individual sovereignty to mm-hmm. be able to determine their own behavior? You know yeah. what I mean? I don't have a clear answer for this. But I'm just curious but what y'all think. The, I think what what also what Philip was describing earlier is, I think there's there's definitely something to say. Like, how do people form opinions? Right? They don't spontaneously change opinions. So, yeah. how do you change someone's behavior without their consent? Like that doesn't that doesn't sound using system one. This is the thing. If if someone thinks that they're, you know, yeah, I mean, this yeah, is right, where dark yeah, patterns yeah, sure, come right. from or okay. things like this, where, where cognitive biases, where you lead someone using their cognitive biases mm-hmm. in the subconscious brain, if they think that they're, um, they're if they do are doing something without being aware of what they're doing okay, exactly, yeah. Yeah. then that's, that's uh, manipulating someone in a way that's against their consent or without it. But how do you know? Because their 95% in control system consents with it because it's doing it. Yeah, good. That's a good point. That's a good point. But right. at I the mean, same if time, it didn't agree, then it wouldn't do it. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, it. You know, this is the this is yeah. choice architecture, right? If you make if you make someone um, basically, if you put someone in a situation where there there's only one choice to make, you know, reasonably, then mm-hmm. you know, what it's I mean? either make the choice or don't make the choice. Yeah, but what? Yeah, so one of the okay. So here's when we talk about consent, and and I I firmly believe that we always have a choice. Right. Whether it's free will or not free will, there's always, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's no situation in which we are uh, absolutely choiceless. Yeah. And then you come up, against, come up against a situation where what if someone's got a gun to your head and they're forcing you to do something? Like, this is one of those things where I think the choice that you're given is unreasonable. It's still a choice. I can say, fuck you, shoot me in the head, mm-hmm. and then I die. But it's not a reasonable choice. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is like the thing where we have... Um, I'm going to take it to a society level now. For example, we have, uh, if you're not on LinkedIn, then it's way harder for you to find a job, especially in tech, than if you are on LinkedIn. Yeah. So yeah. someone basically is is not necessarily a gun to your head, but mm. it's a gun to your wallet or to your career, yeah. saying like, if you want to have a career in um, these and these fields, then you have to give up some of your privacy in order to allow Microsoft to sell your shit to... Um, People who, you know, marketeers and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And you have to, you know, be part of this thing, even if you don't want to. Yeah. Because the the benefits are so big and the, the cost is so large of not doing it mm-hmm. that you're kind of pushed into a thing. So for me, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? That's that's where these mm-hmm. the ethical things and the moral things get tricky. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, and then, of course, LinkedIn has, of course, LinkedIn in a far, far far left field has something to do with sustainable behavior. But I mean, when we're talking, I think it's very interesting, Philip, that you mentioned like morals and ethics, that those are kind of separate things. Um, and then of course you, you get into the debate of who decides what is moral. Um, right. And then as a society, like, are we making wise decisions as a society who gets to steer society, all that jazz. So, um, there, there's lots, lots and lots more to talk about. Yeah. Um, if I may, before yeah. we, um, do y'all have like 10 more minutes? Y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Cool. So dovetailing on what you just said, um, about society, who gets to decide whose morals are the ones that are the most important. 
the question that I wanted to ask earlier, and that you just set it up for me perfectly, thank you very much, is that we, you've talked now, Philip, about individual decision-making, cognitive dif- biases, and mental shortcuts on a human individual level. But as society is, or an organization, is a collection of individuals, and as such, is subject also to bias and institutional bias and different mechanisms that nudge us in maybe unsustainable ways. So understanding that you've talked now about ways to use mental models and to train our subconscious in ways that will um, empower us to go away from unhealthy behavior, how can we apply these same principles or what kind of things would we do if we want to do the same thing, but then on a, on a society level, let's say for a country or huh. for a company? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question again. Uh, and I think, again, there are, there are two answers, mm-hmm. probably more, but two, two answers that <laughs> yeah. jump to the, to the top of my mind. And that is there, as, as you already stated, there are biases that play on an individual level. And there are also biases that play on a group level. So if you were to de-bias groups on uh, their cognitive biases that they have collectively, like Mm -hmm. in-group bias and the bandwagon effect, uh, like doing what everyone else is doing and biases like these, you you could have like, uh, there are already organizations that are doing this that are giving de-bias trainings if, if they work, no one is sure yet. There are very <laughs> positive reactions, very negative reactions. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there is also the approach that we all, we all have biases on an individual level, but they are very universal. So the biases that we have on an individual level are also, you, you, you can be sure that the, the majority of the people has the same biases. Yeah. So if you leverage these biases to the advantage of the planet, to put it in this way, you could nudge people into more sustainable behavior. Or was okay. that like a, I said that last part really fast, but um, that makes sense. Nudging, like a big part of nudging people, is leveraging their behavioral tendencies or cognitive right. biases. Yeah, which actually makes it easier for them to uh, to engage in more sustainable behavior. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, so- this is still like a like a, a field of free experimentation. There is not one way that has been proven mm-hmm. much better than the other ways. So, or maybe there is, and I haven't heard of it yet. That's also possible. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I guess it's yeah. also a case of time will tell. Yeah, probably. But I'm also so you you mentioned because <laughs> yeah. you were talking about um, different kinds of ways that bias happen and how we're trained in in to respond in a biased manner uh, individually and a lot of those uh, could still be applied also to um to society or to collective bias for example um how things have always been so we think about past experience and we think about uh, um let's say stimuli that we've been um subjected to over and over and uh, we've been taught the same way that chicken sexers are that you know when you pick this thing it's wrong when you pick that thing it's right and uh you know over and over and over we get trained that this is wrong and this is right um so then things like racial profiling come to mind and the reason why i'm thinking about this is that uh because i mean we're talking about human bias now but we've also said 
you just mentioned that uh, the way that these chicken sexers learn, the way we train our subconscious is very similar to the way that we train, let's say, AI. Um, and there are human biases already in judicial system, especially in the United States, for example, mm-hmm. that is biased against people of color. Because a yeah, lot of true. the information is already biased in the sense that um, people who get arrested, they say that, you know, we, we see more people who get arrested that are people of color. But it's also because they're being, you know, more people. They're arrested more. More white people are being let go. Yeah. Right. They, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's already biasing, let's say, the data from which other biased conclusions are getting being taken. But um, another thing that worries me is that the, these same data sets are being used to train AI. But the data sets are biased already. So mm-hmm. um, I, it's not really a clear question, but like, what do you think about this? And is, is there a way that we can de-bias something like a judicial system where there's a prejudice in place that's been there for a long time? Let's solve that right now. Five minutes. Let's solve that. We're going to solve that right now. Okay. You have 30 seconds. Go. Let me get my, uh, my gallon of energy drink and uh, oh, yeah. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, um, this, is a, this is a really big problem that is becoming more and more evident, like the, the racist AI buzz. Yeah. Because it's true and it's, it's, uh, it's showing up more and more. And <clears throat> the, the fact is it's, it's clear as day that our human bias is being programmed into the technology that we are producing. Some of it in some way is being transferred to AI in this case. And uh, as of now there, uh, I haven't really heard of a concrete strategy to, uh, to combat this problem. Okay. But if I, w- if I were to give some, some suggestions, uh, I think that lots of people would, would think about debiasing AI in mm-hmm. some way with maybe, maybe some training program. But then th- this might, like, if they were to design a training program for, uh, for AI or for machine learning or something in this domain that can uh, debias an AI or another piece of technology in, uh, in that direction, that would be amazing. But I'm not sure how realistic that is. <laughs> so another thing that pops into me is, so I was talking about these mental models for better decisions, right? Yeah. For more yeah. rational thinking. So if there were a strategy to assure that you can supply an AI with the right mental models, I think that the Hmm. chances that it would be biased into one or another direction would be smaller than if you were to not put these mental models into the AI's programming, to put it scientifically. But yeah, I, I think that these are two two ways of looking at it from a very uh, human-centered view. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at it through the eyes of the AI, I have, I have no idea. But <laughs> fair enough. Giving, it, giving an AI a de-bias training program sounds pretty epic. Mm-hmm. If it works, that, uh, mm-hmm. if it would work that, yeah. that's another question. But in theory, it could. Cool. Because it would probably uh, do the training program and learn from the training program much faster than humans do because humans are terrible at being de-biased, it appears. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> take a step further and actually supply it with the right mental models to prevent it from developing 
racist or other ad attitudes that are could be have a negative impact on society in the first place yeah then yeah that would be a that would be an even bigger win yeah cool yeah and so, it's interesting because we we talked about this in a, in early episodes right like being aware that we are now training biased ai or ai in a biased fashion makes us more human right it makes us reflect more on our own biases yeah that, that's true yeah that sounds uh, that, that's that's very beautifully put as well. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Um, I was. Yeah. Were you, were you done? I'm done. Oh, yeah, you're I think done. that was a, that was a great answer. I mean, I understand. I, I I feel like there was an implicit disclaimer in what you were saying in the sense that you're not an AI expert and so you don't know much about AI, but just understanding from a neuroscientific perspective what how you would go about solving the same issues that you solve on an individual level on a, on, on such a larger scale on a, on a collective level. Yeah. Um, it was extremely interesting for me to hear and, and yeah, thanks. It was, it's a cool perspective. I appreciate it. Yeah. And hey, in light, sorry guys, I just, I got disconnected for a while. Oh, there. No. <laughs> but now I said I'm all these nice so, things about you. Could you uh, just when you were saying the nice things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> could, could you please repeat that <laughs> yeah of course basically philip thank you very much the, the the answer to your question um was exactly what i'm looking for like uh, uh uh i i don't think anyone understands no one's an expert on this because it's just no one really thought about this in in the beginning no one really thought about bias in machine learning and artificial intelligence so um your information combined with uh, stuff that that you know that whatever we might know it's it's already interesting enough to to see. So thank you very much. Cool, That's not what cool he answer. said earlier. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, in in light of this, and in light of um, basically the the reason of our, our of our of the, of the existence of our podcast, I do mm. want to ask you a very different question, uh, huh. Philip. Um, and that is as follows, because I, I I know now that you are a 24 year old dude. You've recently graduated your, uh, from your master's um, in Amsterdam, right? It, um, but I I I get this feeling, and I think some of our listeners also will will get the feeling that you are extremely confident in your knowledge, and also in openly thinking out loud of possibilities. And I want to ask you, like, how, how do you feel about this? And, and how did you get here? Did you always know that you wanted to be a cognitive neuropsychologist? Um, yeah. Ooh, nice. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. That really, uh, really did well for me. I'm not sure if that's what you said the first time. But <laughs> yeah. <I'll never> know. <laughs> you have to listen and, to find um, out. Yeah. Furthermore, uh, I... Of course, yeah, I didn't know that I wanted to be a cognitive neuropsychologist when I was when I was younger. Actually, it was more when when I was younger. I um, I just wanted to study something and do something that didn't bore the shit out of me. Hmm. And then you kind of do this uh, elimination by aspect strategy. So you eliminate everything, and what's left must be the truth. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that uh, that ended up being psychology. Nice. And when I started studying psychology, I, I thought it was terribly terribly boring, actually. But then I uh, I started specializing in cognitive psychology and neuropsychology, which was more interesting for me. And then I like I, I started being so fascinated by using insights of the brain and neuroscience to explain phenomena that we have already known for such a long time in behavioral sciences and behavioral psychology and combining these two things and then <clears throat> uh, 
well you 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 just said that i i come across as as very confident but i would put it more as very interested and fascinated i just mm -hmm. uh, i really want to chase this knowledge find out more about it and uh spread it to people that do not know about it because first of all i think that that most that there are many people that would find it interesting and it also really gives you a new perspective on how to think and make decisions and also like a a little boost in your your empathy to uh spot how other people think and sometimes make bad decisions uh while it's when it's has never been their intention and they didn't have any any harmful intentions or anything but nice they just happen to be driven by their system one mm -hmm. right. so i just yeah to to put it shortly i really like l learning more about this and chasing this knowledge and uh the guys that i'm working with at the moment are exactly the same where we're we found this little club of psychology and systems thinking nerds and we're just uh <laughs> yeah we're just freaking out like little girls over oh, new theories amazing. and uh, applying them everywhere and trying to, to find what's best for whatever situation so cool. yeah i think it's more just fascination than confidence thanks again for the paper by the way on systems thinking Oh, you're most welcome. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's so it, insightful. Wow, it's like changes how you look at the world. Okay, what it paper does, are we yeah. talking about? Thanks. Yeah, so I'll send it to you too. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I have it. Yeah, yeah. Send. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good. Um, good. Uh, maybe this is a good topic for the next time. Systems thinking. For oh, yeah. a next time. For a uh, next time. Yeah. yeah. For a, a next time. Yeah. Our our next podcast together. Yeah, yeah well, I didn't get this new microphone for nothing. So, <laughs> I say, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like your money's worth. Yeah, it's definitely been it's definitely been very pleasant having you in our ears. Um, Thanks, man. All the information that you've that you've given us have been has been very insightful. Um, thank you very much for being on the show, Philip. Um, yeah, you're most welcome. It's been great having you in my ears as well. Awesome. And, uh, <laughs> you've given me some really cool insights to uh, to think about. Nice. All right. Cool. Uh, now that I hear you say it back to me, it sounds weird to, to, to like to hear <laughs> to have you in my ears. Um, but okay, we'll always have you in my ears. For now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that note, I want to end this episode of Shots of Purpose. You can find us on Twitter at Shots of Purpose. We have an email address where you can send us your concerns, your thoughts, something you want us to talk about in another episode. That email address is sop at purposedesign.nl. I'm going to ask uh, Brian or Philip what paper they were talking about and if we're going to put that in the show notes or if, is it is it available publicly yeah it is all right so we're going to put that in the show notes um so that everyone now gets to know what paper they have they are referring to and with that note i want to wish you a very very great week thank you brian thank you philip for being here uh, and there um that's it bye 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 bye